hasn't changed since I was 16. I'm All right, welcome to this in-depth hot seat interview with none other than the legendary Eric Boomer. So, Eric, we have you on the line here. Can you tell us where you hail from? I hail from uh, halftime in the Canadian Arctic and the other half of the time in Teton Valley, Idaho. What are you doing with your headphones there, dude? You sounded so <laughs> <laughs> It's Wait, is this, is this conversation going to be, uh, like, recorded? Yeah, like, you, yeah, we're recording. You sounded so good a second ago. Why did you do that? I always thought that when you put this under your, your lip, it makes it sound better. Is it horrible? Uh, it's fine. We'll go with it. <laughs> so, so where are you? you face on this interview, right? It's just no, voice. No, it's just voice. It's just voice. Okay. We're all good. Perfect. I don't have to put on pants or anything. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just don't scroll the camera down. <laughs> so uh, where are you at right now? Uh, right now I'm in White Salmon, Washington. Um, Sarah, my girlfriend, and I are visiting town and we're paddling and paragliding and kite surfing and just seeing seeing everybody that we haven't seen for a while. Seems like the entire kayaking crew has moved to Hood River and the Columbia Gorge, White Salmon area, and uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's rad. Well, there's not a lot of better places to be, that's for sure. Um, the Hammer Factor's very own John Weld is moving out there. Oh, damn. Yeah. So. Bring it on. I bet he's going to love it. <laughs> now he's super Definitely, excited. Definitely uh, barbecue picnic city. A little bit hot right now, though. It's like 105 degrees. I almost died in the desert. I... Uh, Lost the launch and ended up having to hike through the desert with just a little water bottle back to the paragliding launch. While Isaac and uh, Wes Eustace and all the good paragliders like landed in their backyards from like <laughs> miles. <laughs> I was dying in a desert. <laughs> uh, well, you're on a steep learning curve. All right. Well, let's get into it. Where were you born? And how did you get into How did you get into kayaking? I was born in Grangeville, Idaho at uh, Mountain Syringa Hospital, 8 a.m. And uh, I got into paddling because my dad was super into fishing and floating, so he was dabbling in whitewater rafting. And while we were doing that, we would see kayakers, like, doing stern squirts, and some of his friends kayaked, and there was just, like, no way my dad could keep me out of the boats. Like, any time the paddlers pulled over, I was, like, inspecting and sticking my head in and jumping in the boat to try it out. And um, it didn't take much of that to convince all these other kayakers to kind of take me under their wing and start sending me down rapids. And I think by the time I was 11, I found a kayak in the the classifieds. And I told my dad, like, you know, I saved up almost $300 of lawn mowing money. And so I bought a dancer at age 11 with lawn mowing money and uh, stole my parents' car every time they were out of town. And... <laughs> I haven't stopped since. I still borrow their car sometimes. <laughs> who would, would you say you're – who would you say – early on Early on when I met you, you were hanging out with Tristan a good bit. Like when I, we first started to hang out and paddle together, you guys were kind of – before he had a family there in McCall. Would, would you consider him a mentor or, or, or do you have any mentors in the sport? Um, I would for sure consider Tristan a mentor, you know, and we kind of mentored each other because I feel like on one hand, Tristan had amazing skills in boat control. And so he was, you know, he, I think he took like third or fourth in worlds and, you know, was beating a lot of really good paddlers, older paddlers in slalom races. So 
Tristan had the skills, and um, I had a lot of motivation. And so we kind of combined on those two two sides. I'd bring the motivation and this drive, and Tristan would bring like a little bit more technique, and and definitely taught me a little bit more about technique and you know reading and running hard rivers blind and and uh, yeah, I definitely I definitely don't think I would have been doing stuff as hard as I was if had I not had Tristan. It would have been a little bit more huck and jumpy, but. Tristan brought like that true whitewater kind of prowess that I was able to learn a little bit from. Still does, man. Even with all of his kids and time off, that that guy still has a special touch for the water. Yeah, dude, he's really good. Man, and then like, you and Teo, you know, like I feel like I've had a lot of mentors along the way. But, you know, living in White Salmon, Teo was, you know, certainly a type of mentor. We were you know, just race laps down the little white and trust. And, um, somehow I, you know, connected with you running into you at the Stikin there. And we got to do probably four or five really fun kind of out of the box, non-standard trips. Yeah, that was really cool. I'll just, I'll never forget you guys showing up at the takeout or us coming down to the takeout when you're down there and hearing about you guys like sleeping in the rocks there at V drive and everything. I was just super impressed. I was like, Oh man, this is super impressive. Yeah. We were so fired up. I ran into Toby McDermott two days ago. What? Yeah. First Toby McDermott sighting I've had in like 15 years. <laughs> That's rad. <laughs> yeah. I think they're up in BC right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, they just headed out. But... So obviously you've, you're a well-known expeditionary kayaker and really just in general explorer, like expeditionist. When did you, when did you start getting more drawn into that part of the sport and like what pulled you that direction? Yeah, well, I guess as far as like expeditionary stuff, there's, I think there's a little something to being from Idaho, you know, with the triple crown and the Stikin and you know harder runs like that so i was always seeking them out and you know and at the time too lvm um you know with de la verne you you guys were setting the bar and and driving the real exploration at that time and so you know i was pretty inspired just by what you guys were doing and what a lot of the older idaho guys were doing and i guess i didn't really know when when the flip when the switch turned or you know, when a kayaking trip turns into an expedition, I'm still a little bit baffled about that to this day, sort of. Um, but then when it really turned the corner for me and I feel like I went into a new, new realm was when I started hanging out with my girlfriend, Sarah. And she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do expeditions. You know, I just got off a short one. And I was like, oh, what? Like, how long was that? You know, if I've done like 12 days on a river before. You know, she's like, oh, it's just short 45-day expedition. And um, hanging out with her definitely changed a little bit of my framework for what expeditions can be and how long you can be out camping, driving, you know, on your own power. That brings me to my next topic. So you've done some notable sea kayaking trips, um, in particular circumnavigating Ellesmere with John Turk. We'll get into that in a little more detail. Like you say, you've got into these dog sledding expeditions, kiting expeditions. Obviously, we're going to talk about the Twin Galaxies thing here in a little bit. What's the difference and similarities between that and, say, a trip to the Makatna or a you know a trip to a normal whitewater expedition? 
Man, they're really not that much different. Um, I think the most important thing that sometimes we overlook as kayakers because we're just always paddling is uh, is just the preparation, though. You know, um, you you, you got to just you got to be dialed on how far you can travel in that particular train. You got to be dialed on your food. You got to be dialed on logistics map safety you just have when when you're when you're away from the road and you can't just hike out in one day you know you need to be prepared for anything and and yeah it just seems like the groups that are more prepared have a lot more success than than the groups that don't really plan it out um yeah i i I guess i feel like doing these longer trips i've learned a little bit i you know was a little lucky, I guess, just being um, gallant and just charging into canyons. But man, just having a little bit more preparation and uh, and doing your due diligence beforehand definitely definitely pays pays back. Oh yeah, you touched on this or, or just a little bit, but you talked about kind of the groups and the team. Where does the team dynamic fit in to these expeditions? What's some of your experience with that? Man, my, my experience with that is that the team is like literally everything. Um, it, it, it's like the most important thing. And in some ways in kayaking, you're a bunch of little individuals who operate as a team. Um, and, you know, but you're kind of making your own choices and whatnot. And, and the longer you're out there and the more you're working as a team on these longer trips, the more that uh, it gets, you know, because of that, it, it's tighter. So you've, you've got this greater bond. But at the same time, you know, you, everybody's little ticks or little bits of ego and stuff really definitely starts to come out. And all you can do is just be forgiving, you know, with everyone else's little things and, and your own, too. And just figure, you know, it's, it's like you come out of there more family than expedition partners because you just know people way better. The bond's greater. But that does, you know, sometimes make the edge a little bit sharper, too. <laughs> That's a, that's a really good way to put that. Yeah. Speaking of of groups and and trips, you did one one of the ones that stands out to me is your circumnavigation of Ellesmere Island. Had had that ever been done before? And tell me about that dynamic with you and John Turk. Yeah. So that was my first uh, really big long trip. You know, it was I think I'd camped like ten days on one trip before on like the Alsec, you know, and I'd done a little bit of winter camping that winter with Sarah and I set out on a 104 day snow camping trip with a 70 year old guy that I didn't know. Um, <laughs> 104 was, days. Uh, that trip was epic. Yeah. 104 days in a tent with a 70 year old guy <laughs> that you had coffee with once. <laughs> oh man. All right. So do tell Kind of lay that out. Give me some stories. Yo, man. Well, like day one, you know, we're like laying out stuff. Maybe let let's say we're 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 at camp, you know, like setting up and cooking dinner, and then I'm like, hey, John, you know, like, do do we have like a deck of cards we could play a game or something? And he just looked at me super stoically. I don't play games. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he said about that. Is like, Eric, I don't play games. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was you know night one <laughs> um, um. <laughs> i mean the the cool man some of the 
the best things though is like John really, really in, enjoyed the grind. He loved like the suffering side of it. So I just, I knew when things were hard and, and, and I kind of have a bit of a masochist um, tone in myself as well. So I kind of enjoy the hard grinds and you could always count on him for just like this real true smile that would just break through this, this suffering and just, you could tell the dude's really, really loving it. And all we, you know, we'd stop and talk about all these other potential plans and hard missions. And, you know, you, you could tell that the spirit of adventure was well alive within, in John Turk. So now El- Ellesmere Island is, is it in the Arctic Circle or it's right near the Arctic Circle? It is, it's above the Arctic Circle. So oh, it's okay. totally encompassed and then like half of it moves into the true like polar circle, which is, you know, I think it's above like 80 degrees so, or something. You know, we're on the polar ice cap um, at times there. So you're, so you're 104 days on this trip. It seems like that's really cutting into the summer season. Like, how did that play out? Was it was the weather starting to go bad, or or how does it work up there? I've I've never been up there. Yeah, well, it, it's crazy. It's all incredibly rapid. So we started in May, May seventh, and it was like totally winter. Um, you know, there's winter for us. For them, it's definitely springtime because you you don't really have much sunset. So the sun's kind of always up and it's like slowly starting to warm up and the sun's got a lot of heat, but it's still cold in the shade. And, uh, super quickly, little visit from Jay Gifford here. Nice. Oh, Factor, yeah. Talking. Yeah. Morning. Morning. The patron of the Hammer Factor White Salmon <laughs> office. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. But, uh, Thanks Jay. <laughs> um man things get really really rapid that time of the year so as as the sun's coming out it, it'll add like 15 minutes of of more sunshine every single day and so there's a point of rapid melting where everything just starts melting and going off and it, it's a feedback loop that increases and then uh and then the opposite starts to happen and it it starts slower and then i think it's like august 15th things start to rapidly freeze, like really quickly. I believe August, September is still the the most ice-free time of the year, though, because it takes all of that time for that heat to kind of rebound and break everything up. So actually, when it's freezing is also when it's the most ice-free. So on that trip... And, and so- yeah, on that trip, you, I guess your your question too is like what we we're experiencing and what we experienced, what, which was unique, was most trips will just move through the summer or through the fall or through the winter. And this one, we went through um, two seasons. We started in the winter and went through this slush shit season that was literally like crawling through waist deep slush for two weeks. Uh, wouldn't recommend it, but it's two weeks. You know, it goes away and it gets better. And, um, that's so Eric Boomer, that statement. (laughs) (laughs) It was good. Yeah. There was one day that, um, the first day we really started crawling, it was just not supportable and I couldn't even pick my legs out of the slush enough to like, you know, move my knee back over because my legs were dragging, but I fell onto my, my forearms and realized like, God, this is pretty efficient. Just crawling with these arms. (laughs) 
and I stopped to have a snack and John like crawled right over to me and he's like, this is amazing how fast you can move like this. And I was like, yeah, John. <laughs> oh God, dude. So what were you, besides the mucky mud, I mean, what were you dealing with to get this done? Is it just, were, were you in the boat most of the time? Were you crawling most of the time? Well, I would say we, for the first 700 miles, we were on skis or walking. Skis when it made sense and walking when 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 it made sense. Um, skiing is way more efficient, so we're just pulling the kayak. And at that point, we're just trying to get 15 miles a day because we have, you know, we'd have like 50 days of food and we need to get 15 times 50 days before we get to our next food cache so it's like every day you have this goal that you gotta hit you know it's this stairmaster goal and if you don't hit it you're gonna be kind of hungry and so yeah we hammered out that walking part and then it shifted to um where we were going to start to paddle but the ice um was super messed up because the the winds blew it all into the shore and so we expected to be paddling and there'd be a chunk of ice that like, hey, maybe we could ride that ice. It floats through this channel. And all of a sudden, this baseball field sized piece of ice would just like start to like rock and then like rip in half and stand straight up in the air, probably like 30 feet. And, you know, it's like 20 feet thick, just getting lifted up and rolled and then just squashed and ground into the shore. You know, and we were like, well, I guess we, you know, shouldn't have been on that chunk of ice. That's, that's a... Oh, God, dude. So we, we kind of had to sit and wait for a while. And we, like, waited for days and days and nothing was changing. And we were just watching ice move and break. And then we'd, like, jump on a chunk. And we are like, moving fast south. And we thought we were going to just sail on this piece of ice through this channel. And we start to like go to bed and the wind starts blowing the other way and it blew us five miles north into the ocean like backtracking we were trying to go south through this channel and it totally blew us out to sea the other way and so as soon as it was spread out enough we just like paddled back to shore and had to carry all of our crap another mile or two down to the same point <laughs> and i think we were there 17 days at that point just eating like half food rations. So, um, so you're missing, yeah. you're missing your, you're missing your 50 days at that point. You've pretty much understood. Yeah. At that point we're like starting to talk about like, well, you know, like do we eat all of our food and then like try to make it back to a military base or what? And John was like pretty early on was started half doing only half food. And I'd like, didn't do it at that point. So it was like, shit, like, all right got to start eating a little bit less. And I just started going for big walks and hunting rabbits. Um, so I got like 10 big ass rabbits. So, so at that point, so literally you're just out there with a rifle in full survival mode at this point. You're just, yeah. Yeah. There's like a military, a top secret military base about 30 miles away. And little do, do they know I'm walking around with a, a long rifle hunting and surviving in the back zone. Yeah, every now and then I'd find some old like military gear and, and cars and stuff that they'd leave out there, but not much food. Oh, man. So <laughs> tell me about the wildlife up there. I've never been exposed to it, but I know that there's some polar bear issues. And 
Yeah, well, on the cute side, there's these these rabbits. Um, <laughs> you gotta Google these things. Seriously, the Ellesmere, um, the Arctic hares of Ellesmere, they're the cutest things ever. They um, they're super tall. They're like a foot and a half tall, and they stand up like like kind of like boxers and let their paws flip around. <laughs> Um, I'm serious. You gotta, you gotta check these things out. They're the cutest. But you've got, you've got the bunnies. We've got foxes. We've got wolves that were in camp. Um, polar bears. We had probably 20 close encounters. Um, you know, they ripped our tent from the inside. Um, and and walruses, narwhal were surfacing with their unicorn tusks all around the boats as we were paddling through there. Lots of seals. Um, yeah, all kinds of awesome animals. It's it's kind of like being on another planet, man, because those those walruses are like aliens. It's yeah, it's kind of not real. These big alien blubber things with tusks and they snort and stink. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you make it in your hundred and four days? We did, yeah, just perfectly, and and we literally pushed it so close that um, when we finished. John went into like kidney failure two days later. Oh God. And, um, and yeah, so we had to have him evac'd, you know, it was all good. And his body just kind of like shut down and gave up. And, uh, and luckily he made it to Ottawa in time and they, I think he just needed more nutrients in his body or something. And, uh, and he kicked right back on. So you get off that expedition you and Sarah do some other things. Um, where do you guys base out of up there? Iqaluit. Iqaluit. Which is it's the capital of Nunavut um, on Baffin Island and a good jump off point for, for a lot of trips. And so then you guys are up there and then this idea for this Twin Galaxies expedition comes up. I just got to back up. And just what were you thinking? Like, how did this idea come about? Like, where, like, so explain to me the trip, the ins and outs of the trip and what you were trying to accomplish. Well, so like from the Ellesmere trip, I realized like, holy cow, man, we drug a kayak 750 miles and it, you know, it, it takes time, but compared to putting that thing on your shoulder and hiking over the Sierras, it's a pretty sweet way to travel. Like really, if you want to do a distance and you've got time, um, so it it was in my mind. It was like, God, man, screw hiking over the Sierras. I want to find an ice cap to go over and 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 find the right river. So we actually got to do just a backup one step um, before Twin Galaxies. We got to do a trip on the Penny Ice Cap on Baffin Island in Sarah's backyard, where we crossed an ice cap, pulling a kayak. And then went down between these huge, amazing mountains, Mount Thor and Mount Asgard. I think I remember that. Yeah, and paddled this Weasel River, which was super sweet, um, and continued this traditional sea kayak trip where we like built our own kayaks on it for sixty-five days, blah blah blah. But uh, um, it, it definitely proved the concept that it, it works to pull kayaks over glaciers, and then it puts you right to the source of a sweet river without having to hike up what you're going to go down. And, you know, I like it because it makes a real clear point A to B on the map as well. So, yeah, we were hunting for something. We knew Greenland had a lot of options. And um, 
Stukesbury, you know, I told him a lot about it. Like, man, we could just, you can travel so far. And um, he came up to learn how to kite ski in March and got his face a little bit frostbitten and got a, a nice little, uh, you know, a, a baptism by fire in the cold. And by the time he left, we found, we did find by just pouring the edge of Greenland with Google Earth, this amazing blue, deep um, ice canyon feeding off of, of the ice cap that looked like it went into a good 10 miles of 3,000 feet dropping into the ocean. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of clear at, at that point that, you know, we've got a new route crossing the Greenland ice cap, which is a classic kind of polar achievement. And then not only that, we're going to join that right into a really good-looking river, which, man, it looked good, but there were moments out there that we thought maybe we were just going to be walking to the ocean, too. It was kind of kind of touch and go there for a moment. But, yeah, in general, that was the idea, though, was just to combine these two disciplines and these two trips to do, like, a classic, long, hard, polar kind of trip and then throw in a little bit of adrenaline, extreme kayaking, um, if it all worked out. And who all was on that trip? That was uh, Sarah McNair Landry, my girlfriend, and Ben Stukesbury, my boyfriend. No, my <laughs> friend. <laughs> um, yeah, who, who's, you know, the man at Expedition Kayaking and has been in probably more countries and done, I would say that Ben's probably been doing this stuff consistently for longer than anybody I know right now. Um, yeah, he's definitely been on that forefront kind of edge for quite a while. Yeah, we have an inter- we're going to interview uh, uh, Ben next week. I'm really excited about that. So, oh, awesome. okay, back to the crossing Greenland. So I'm assuming a boat drops you off at one side and you have all your stuff and your plan is to use skis and kites to cross the ice, cla- ice cap? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we could just ski it and just suffer for our 15, 15 miles a day. I know how that goes. Um, but yeah, on this particular trip, Sarah's been super into kiting and taught me how to kite. So this kiting is a new passion of mine. And this was my first kiting expedition where we got to use the kites to travel across the ice cap. And, you know, we were pretty quickly making like 50 mile days with the kites and it's just a lot funner. I mean, it's still hard. You're still standing there. You're still, you know, just taking a lot of weight on your body, but it's, it, it was sweet to get to kite kite and sweet for me to spend that much time on a kite. This, um, last season, I felt way more comfortable doing all kinds of stuff just because of that. So there was an injury. Sarah heard her back on the trip. What, now what went down there? Yeah, so early on, like we literally just hit the first point that we could get kites up and we had the film crew that was going to be leaving and they traveled with us for this first 10 days of slow climbing and just getting to where there'd be enough snow and it flattens out and then the wind also is up there too. And so the first day we could kite, we were getting some shots so they could leave. Forgive me for interrupting. What kind of elevation gain is that? from The elevation gain, man, I think that we... I think we were up at around like seven, six, six thousand feet, seven thousand feet. Okay, so it's a big climb. Yeah, it was pretty much eleven days of climbing, um, maybe ninety miles. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Go on. I just wanted to get more of a visual on that. Yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, so 
yeah, eight, nine days of, of steady climbing. And, and it was, the climbing was really crappy. It was a lot of up, down, up, down, not, you know, just a steady up would be nice, but we didn't really get that. Um, so we're excited. We bust out the kites. Um, we're getting some shots and the wind just kind of started cranking up some. And Ben, um, was having trouble putting down his kite and it started looping and he's just like dragging out of control downwind because um, he's still learning. So I'm like going over there trying to help him, but I'm on a huge kite and I can't really like put it down super well either. And so Sarah um, was like, all right, I'll put mine down and I'm just going to pull this release, which is actually like a really responsible thing to do. It flags out the, the kite and it'll just go down and then she could go help. But it was a bit of an older release. And so when she pulled it, it went out and snagged on something and and it went into full power and beyond what she could reach. So she oh. was just like on full yard and couldn't touch it and it just plucked her. And I think she was, I just out of the corner of my eye, I saw her flying through the air, just going head, you know, feet over head. And she must have landed on the back of her neck or head and cracked a sweet helmet on the snow which must have taken a pretty good impact to do that. And she was unconscious and kind of came to pretty quickly and uh, was shaken up, but still kind of mentally there. But as the soreness set in, she was, she was pretty damn hurt. And there was a helicopter leaving the next day. So there was a lot of like talk and pressure to send her out on the helicopter but she was just like, man, I don't, if I, I want to see how I feel in five days. And if there wasn't a helicopter here, I wouldn't call one and I wouldn't want to go for a ride on one. So I'm, I want to wait and see how, see how she feels. Turns out she, we realized after the trip that she'd actually broken her back, a 40% compression fracture of, of T8. So it wasn't even just like a broken vertebral process. It was like the whole body was crushed. And, um, yeah, she stayed, it was, it was, it was, you know, we were like, all right, let's take it five days and see how it feels. And so we, Ben and I took turns pulling her weight and just were kind of, there wasn't any wind anyway. So we just thought let's advance and gain elevation and, and gain cause it gets you a better, um, direction with the wind to sail anyway. And there were some days like day three or four, I felt like it was getting worse. And it was like, you know, in my mind was like, man, thinking of all the obstacles we're going to have to come, thinking of her maybe making it worse, seeing her in pain, you know, I'm thinking like, man, maybe she should, maybe she should go. And so we kind of talked to her about it and she just like looked at me so disappointed, you know, just like, you know, and I'm like, well, how do you guys do this in the past, you know? And she's just like, we we just help each other, you know? Like, and it was definitely like a, a moment that I think Ben and I like learned a little bit more of like the teamwork and the, the team aspect of, of these kind of trips, you know? It's like in kayaking, somebody gets cold, like scared and wants to hike out. Sometimes, you know, sometimes that feels good because it pairs the group down to this like really tight, group that can be efficient but you know in this case you're you're all in it together and and you know what's going to change you know other than taking things a little slower and helping each other out and having a better experience you know that's the only thing that that's going to change and 
you know, maybe we had to slow down a, a bit for Sarah, but for what we got back from her with like her experience and her, um, just her knowledge and she, it's kind of like, you know, being around somebody who's super comfortable and gnarly class five, like they could just be like, no, this is fine. You know, there's going to be a route and here's where it's at. And somebody who can just not be scared and kind of plot things out. Um, cause Ben and I would have definitely just increased the suffering in a lot of places and we would have been so grumpy and tired and I would have been just like trying to charge and, and, uh, it, yeah. Anyway, it turned out to, to be super key to have Sarah, and we learned a bunch. And it's just, um, the, yeah, the key is being together as a team, and that's, I mean, it's the same thing that we were doing in the Bighorns too. You know, is just being being a team. Wow. All I can say is wow. So essentially, Sarah had the most experience on the ice. That was her environment, the place she was at the most. That was her, you know, kind of contribution to the group and. It, regardless of if she hurt, she was hurt or not, she still kind of fulfilled that role. Oh, big time! Yeah, yeah, she's a smooth operator, hmm. and uh, yeah, you know. And then there was like some days that it was. I'm, I wish I could think of some really clear examples, but she was just mentally really, really strong. You know, at the end of long days, she was always like ready to keep going and be like, "Well, it's still windy, so." you know, of course we should make way more miles. And then there are some days we we're just struggling hiking and she's like, eh, I'll continue walking with you guys. But like, we should just chill out. You know, like we're not efficiency wise, we're not saving anything. And, and she was totally right. Huh. Interesting. So speaking of Sarah, she's got more into class five kayaking and whatnot. So you've oh, yeah. obviously been through a dynamic and in her environment there on the ice, I'm sure that there's, um, um, how do you say it? There's a certain, um, back and forth between you guys when you're in her environment, but when she's on the river and she maybe wants to step it up, what's, what's different when that, do you worry or are you just like, go get them baby or how, how's that work? Yeah. Well, you know, I definitely worry, you know, and, 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 uh, and I, I try to really watch close, but at the end, I just, I, you know, try to treat her the same way she treats me and be like, Hey, you know, here's where I think the issues are. Here's where, you know, what I think we could do. And otherwise it's up to you. If you want it, you know, go get it. Um, but the last month we were with, uh, Noria Newman in Noria's boot camp, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Sarah was paddling really good. Noria was, was training her well. And, we definitely came to a rapid on the, the Murtaugh section, Paradise, that, you know, I just grew up around there, and I remember looking at that hole at high water since I've been young, and it's just one of those things that stuck with me today. Like, that hole will just suck back from, like, 40, 50 yards. <laughs> and uh, so I'd kind of just planned that Sarah and I would portage that, and freaking Noria's scouting it, and Sarah jumps up to scout it with Sarah, and next thing I know, Sarah wants to run this <laughs> Class 5 rapid. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't that so stoked about it um, just because mentally I'd already kind of decided we'd be walking it. But, I, you know, I'm happy to run the rapid with Sarah if she wants to. But it was it was there was a big ferry to make and then a fine line. And and uh, yeah, it had me nervous. But um, thanks, Noria, for pushing <laughs> a little bit hard there. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it's new ground for sure where, where there's real consequences and I'm not in control of everything, but you know, I, I have to just be reciprocal that, um, I do the same, you know, and to bring it back to twin galaxies, a really key point that Sarah did that for me was that last drop that really nasty one, the King of Kong. We were there for almost three days, like the day we got there. And then we is, had to is that the, that big double drop? Yeah. The big double drop, Yeah, that, you know? Yeah. yeah. We, we had to carry all of our gear there and then we had to carry gear below. So we were like looking at that thing for three days and I knew I wanted to run it from the beginning, but it just didn't feel right until like the last day I'd kind of healed up from the hits on the other drops. And I felt like as I went to bed, like, all right, tomorrow's going to be my day. And it snowed like four inches. And so I didn't think that we'd be able to move around safely because it's just this slick rock. And, uh, um, it ended up being really good, but I was super bummed and Sarah was just like, baby, you should just do it. Like, I can tell you want to do it so bad. You should do it. That's and on rad. the other side of the tent is Ben and Ben's just like, I can hear you two talking, <laughs> like, quit whispering. I think it's a stupid idea, but shit, if you guys want to help, like I'll, I'll do safety, but God, I can hear you guys. You don't have to whisper. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to ask Ben about that when we get him on the show in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about the big horns. So let me just kind of back up. I saw, I was following your guys's trip. Ben was making some posts. You made some posts and it's just a place I knew nothing about as a kayaking destination. And it just was super intriguing. And that's kind of what, um, prompted my call. What are the big horns? Where are they at? Tell me about them. Man, the Bighorns are this funky, funky mountain range in eastern Wyoming where, you know, you pass Jackson, you pass Cody, and you get into these big plains out past Yellowstone and the Beartooth Plateau. And eventually this this range just rises right up. And it's it's not quite like a fin, but it's 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 a pretty narrow, kind of tall mountain range, probably thirty miles wide and maybe a hundred miles long north to south. But it goes right up from like 3,500 feet elevation to about 10,000 feet. And there's this big old plateau up on top. And it's, it's sacred to Native Americans that, you know, there's this huge, huge medicine wheel that's aligned with the stars and the solstice that people have been using, I guess, for 9,000 years that they'd make that trip up into the high country and, um, you know, the first time that I've been in the, the Bighorns is actually kite skiing in the winter. Every winter I go there and, and we stay at a lodge and kite ski all over that area. So I'd been aware of it and I knew, man, there's waterfalls out here. Um, but leave it to Ben. And, and Ben, you know, messages me in something like 20 years ago. He'd ran a couple rivers in the area. And um, since he was living in Montana, he was more interested in, in rivers in Wyoming and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, he kind of prompted, you know, this tongue and, and goose, which were kind of on my radar, but he definitely was really believed in them. And we started doing that, that Google earth work. And these were draining off the East side of the big horns. And, uh, one super interesting thing about them is for the Western mountain ranges, this one's way wetter on the East side and it gets huh. a lot of weather from the the mississippi i believe um 
but yeah, it's just, it's crazy the kind of relief and drop that these things have, but it's just a big enough basin that there's a lot of water to come off too. Um, on the other side is the Shell River, which, um, gosh, it, it, like I look at it every time and I pull over and there's some slot canyons, but um, I'm not sure what the runnable white water to portaging would be on that one. And, and it appears to be kind of crappy and that's what everybody says too, but um, I don't know. I, there's, I still know it can be done and you can set a few ropes at a few spots and, and who knows, there might be more, more good whitewater in there than you think. So what rivers did you guys run? Ben and I went out on a scout trip early on and we got shut down on a few that we wanted to do, but we did get on the Little Goose Creek, which was at a good flow when we were there. And that was about seven miles of class five plus mank, um, nonstop, super mank. Um, yeah, we, we each got like pinned and had to get kind of like team extracted a few times <laughs> on this one. There was no way around it. Um, you, you just had to drop in there and, and... <laughs> yeah, pretty, if, if you're going to be on that river, you're going to get extracted. Um, it, it was just too pinball-y and too too small but we we did uh two days on that one and we were able to scout out these next two bigger objectives the the big goose creek and the tongue and you know scouting rivers is just a lot of work you're just you know we hiked like 15 20 miles and uh on each of those runs and we just called it putting in the due diligence you know we, we the pretty much the the main info we had was like there's siphons and sieves and we should you know, bring scuba gear and lots of rope. And, you know, Ben had this roto hammer that he was really proud of that I was really psyched to have him bring so he could like roto hammer out of whatever box canyon we end up in. But, um, but from scouting it, we realized, you know, like, man, I, f I feel like we can move around in there. It didn't feel like we were going to be stuck. And we saw enough good things that it was like, this is, this is worthy. Um, still we didn't see everything and, you know, we're still seeing it from a long ways away. So as always, once you start to actually get into the whitewater, you're like, Jesus, this is a lot steeper than it looked from <laughs> two or 3000 feet up above. This is really steep. Um, but yeah, we, we put in like a week of, of just like living in our cars, hiking around the woods there. And, um, right after the North Fork event, we were just watching the flows cause we knew what we 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 generally wanted in there and um we also knew we wanted one more person and um you know i i've done a little bit of paddling the past year with noria and i i knew that she was going to be strong and, and firing so we we kind of pushed to have her and she just jumped in the the car with us and she ended up being so good on the river man she was just she was on fire just charging and, and leading the way and motivating us um it was definitely key to have new but the first one we did was big goose creek and that one we kind of feel like it was similar to maybe like the devil's post pile the first big rapid is the goosematic falls which is pretty <laughs> rad i like that um, goosematic yeah goosematic it was it was a pretty proper pretty proper like 15 foot air booth um Below that was the perfect 20-footer, which ended up probably being more like 45, 50 feet. And then um, and it kind of just kept going. After that, it got good. We got into the Goosable Gorge where there was this 
mandatory sieve portage in the middle of an unportageable gorge, you know, where we had to figure out how to climb around these boulders and seal launch off the backside. Um, yeah, the goose like blew our minds. We got off of it thinking like, man, we've found a new classic. This place is insane. I was about ready to leave because my girlfriend was flying into the airport and um, Ben convinced me to stay for the tongue, which I didn't see as many big drops on the tongue. And it was like, man, this is just going to be like, you know, just hard white water, a little high the whole time. And turns out we, ben, ben talked me into staying and that one had it kind of an all like hard, big white water, not manky, big boofs, big holes and and big drops. And man, I feel like we the portage to run ratio was really high. We're I think we we definitely got out to portage a few sections, but man, not not much at all, like way less than the box or anything like that. Wow. So you But it did take us about a day to do each mile. <laughs> just because it was so stacked. What kind of Yeah, if you want safety like on every drop there was some kind of bad place um where you you just you wanted to have somebody out of the boat for sure what kind of gradient were you looking at per mile um so i mixed these up um initially but the the big goose was 4200 feet in like six miles pretty much of gradient (laughs) and then and then the tongue was i think the tongue was 2600 feet in six miles but had about 400 cfs and the way it channelized was like a a good full 400 cfs so it didn't you know it, it compared to the way that the goose felt that felt perfect flow for 4200 feet but this was like just there was some some holes and a lot of water booths um super good what so do you think the big horns are going to be a, a spot I mean, do you, do you, is there more work to be done there or is it just? And I think that there's, I definitely think there's more work to be done there and I'm definitely down to go back. I think that some, I, I'm sure some Wyoming guys will, will probably get out there, but like, you, you know, it, it is hard. Like you've got a little bit of bias after you run a run and you have no expectations and then it's good. So like we're trying to kind of hold our, um, you know, hold our thoughts and try to figure out where exactly this stands and where, where it fits into things. But in, in my opinion, like the tongue would be a good river. If you're, if you're a little bit bored on the box, you know, if you're running the Clark's Fork box and you want some bigger drops and you want more challenge and to not know what's around the corner or how to get out of deliberation corner, then I would say the tongue would, would probably be a next step for you there, but it's definitely dangerous and it's definitely steep. Um, but having said that, it's, you know, it's my first time in there and I know how these things go. If more beta and more people get in there, all of a sudden it, um, it doesn't have to be so hard and things change. Hmm. You spoke, you touched a little bit on the due diligence to get in there. It seems that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's a big trend to post the level you did the little white or, you know, I did a high water descent of this run and it seems like there's less and less of kind of that work and going out and trying to find that new spot. Is it, is that just becoming more obscure? Do you see this at all? Boy, I, you know, I guess 
I kind of, I, I, on my radar, I'm kind of looking for that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's what I try to see and I do see. And, you know, I still see, man, you know, like that Scimitar expedition was super cool. And, you know, I really want to be part of that. But I, I feel like I'm still seeing it. But it, I guess the limelight and where a lot of the attention is right now, like you're saying, is on these classic runs and these classic more level things and i mean it is pretty darn cool some of the rapids that have been opened up on the classics now you know the fact like that the untouchables and scott's drop and like man you know like i i have to say i haven't run those but a big part of me is like wants to go do some classic california to get a chance to to run those you know and even you've still you've still never been to you've still never been to california kayaking no, last time I went, you didn't show up. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Here we go. No, I hear you. I mean, do you think, I mean, as far as expeditionary kayaking, you know, where do you think, what direction do you think it's going to go? Do you think it's going to go probing into these more obscure mountains and that kind of thing? Or is is it going to be testing new rapids and, and testing higher water? And I think a little bit of, of both of it. I think I feel like it kind of balances out. It's like, you know, when when you have the opportunity to run things a little higher in some of these new rapids. I know, like, you know, speaking of a place that more people should be kayaking, like the Bighorns, is the Wind River Range. You know, Bull Lake Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, according to Ben, he'll probably tell you next week or whatever. But he thinks it's better than the Middle Kings, and there's some big drops on that that haven't been run. Um, you know, so it would be, you know, if people aren't running the Bull Lake Creek, it's hard to imagine a lot of people coming out and paddling in the big horns as well. Right. But, um, you know, I'm kind of fired up on it though. And it actually like makes me stoked because, um, if, you know, if, if, if Wyoming was full of all the paddlers, like California is, I'd just be complaining about all the people. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, for me, it's kind of a win-win situation. It makes it a little bit easier to find some new runs and get off the beaten path. And, um, you know, until, until all these runs are crowded, you know, I'm happy. (laughs) Um, yeah. Of, of all the, of all the expeditions, whitewater, kiting, the whole nine yards, what, what what sticks out as the most fun? Like not, maybe not maybe not you know maybe it's type two type you know whatever type of fun you want to call it. But what what sticks out as just some of like you're like man that went great. Man, um, well I would <laughs> I, I I have to say that Twin Galaxies like was right on the a pretty amazing line for like the adventure to working out ratio, <laughs> where like we're right at the edge of just like oh my god this is terrible we're going to be broken we're not going to finish we don't have a river we're not prepared um but it all worked out so in my mind that's like kind of perfect when you you know just when you get scared and you can see a million other possibilities but it still works out um but i'm just going to rephrase your question to to something else and, and answer something completely different too um probably the gnarliest expedition and the hardest most physically demanding and dangerous one that I've done was dog sledding around half an island with with Sarah my girlfriend in the winter um that was a four month long trip it was 120 days 
and we averaged about a marathon a day, like 50 kilometers a day. And it was like, it was probably negative 70, negative 80 for like a oh, couple wow. weeks that we were moving through that. It was so gnarly. When did you do that? Uh, 2015. And it's like, of all our trips, it's the one that's gotten the least media and least attention. But dude, when you're in negative 70, negative 80 in the remote plateau, like charging into the storms, there's definitely, definitely a point where like, man, if you're like five feet away, you just like, you can't see somebody and you're gone. And you know, you got like 30 seconds for your skin to be exposed. And, uh, it's that's the most violent and rugged environment that that I've been able to travel through for when, sure. When you're out on something like that and you're so reliant on your dog team, is there like a special relation? I've always been interested in in dog sledding and wanted to do it. Like, how does oh, that that relationship dude, happen? Yeah, you, you've always had big dogs too. You should definitely come hang out with us sometime, man. It's that's the best thing is the dogs don't give a shit, man. You can be scared <laughs> if it's storming. And you'll, you'll still see like this goofy dude, they, all their personalities really come out, each and every one of them. It's like a wrestling team or a football team of personalities that you're managing. And, you know, you'll be scared and the big like goofy dude is still going to go piss on the cheerleader and like get her all icy and pissy. And then he's going to get in a fight with somebody else because they're like fighting over who gets to pee on his sister or something. Oh. Um, and they just, they're like full of love for people though. You know, like they're definitely rough and tongue, tumble with each other and kind of like humans who just do whatever they want. They don't really have like the social conscious to, to like control them, but um, they're pretty amazing and just full of love. They'll keep you warm, man. They'll, they'll, they'll cuddle up with you. And, and man, if you're freezing at night, you're, you're good if you got a dog. Dude, that is so rad, man. You are the, you are the man, Boomer. So <laughs> you've had some gnarly ones. What's the, what's the lowest? What's the worst? What's, what's the time? What, give me the, give me the lowest of the low. Oh man. We've been on a few low points. I would say, I would say there's, there were some points on that dog sledding trip that were pretty low when we had to start like skiing in front of them for the last, we pretty much had to ski in front of the dog 60 kilometers a day for two months at the end. Why is that? And because they were just getting tired and unmotivated. I mean, they hadn't really run four thousand kilometers, you know, around the island before. They didn't really know what they were getting into. You know, they're just like, "Sweet, I'll follow you." You know, so eventually they would stop leading the way, and we had to like be the lead dog because they they loved us so much they would follow us, but they needed that extra motivation and that that little carrot that was us to pet them to charge out in front. Um, you know, and, and I guess when, when I think about your question, when I think of all these trips and whatnot, there's definitely low, hard moments. But um, looking back at all of it, it's they're all like such positive, awesome experiences that if I gave you a low, it would probably honestly be like when you're getting off of one and you don't have like a next thing to do and you're just kind of trying to figure out what you're doing. For me, that would probably be like, as low as it gets you know it i really like to have um yeah direction that i'm going and and um those clear goals definitely make me stoked so there's the expedition there's the team there's actually putting it together there's coming up with the plan 
But then a big one is coming up with a way to fund the trip. Yeah. What are the challenges in that regard and how have you found success there? Man, well, kind of the, the formula that, that seemed to work for me and I'd kind of recommend, you know, everybody gets their own opportunities and their own formula, but, um, it's pretty similar to the way we do all the kayaking stuff we did was just, you know, you save up money and, you know, you, you work a job where you can save and not spend all your money, live in your car, eat ramen noodle, whatever you got to do. And you start doing your personal trips and you get, you know, your, your resume and your, your network of people that you send stories to and they're all examples and it eventually starts to build and become something. But I don't, I can't think of anyone, you know, that would want to fund or put money towards something that isn't proven or doesn't have a clear product that, that comes out of it. So first and foremost is just doing it on your own. And it also proves the concept that like you like what you're doing and you want to be doing it because if you don't like it, even if somebody pays for it, you're going to leave. Like it happens all the time on expeditions. People get all this funding and then they don't even really like what they're doing. So they leave. Um, so just doing it and building up slow and, you know, and the more we did it, the more we started writing grants and we'd get a few grants here and there. And I feel like every time you get a grant, it, it it's just like one more step towards getting that grant again or getting another grant. Um, you know, starting out, you get gear sponsorship or discount sponsorship. And that's, that's a great step. That's, you know, how it starts. And then you, and then you deliver it home with like great stories and great pictures and, um, you know, over deliver on, on as many deliverables as you can. And now we're at a point where like the Greenland expedition, for example, we, when I first started planning, I planned the ultra budget, which would have been gnarlier. Actually, my ultra budget trip was like, if, if we had to pay for it, um, we would have finished at the coast and then we would have had an additional like 75 mile sea kayak <laughs> to this community. <laughs> And um, I was pretty into that idea. And then Eddie Bauer kind of stepped up and, and we wrote a grant to National Geographic Expedition Council, which came through really luckily. Um, and, you know, with the Nat Geo grants, I think we're at like one out of every three or so will get funded on average that Sarah writes. And, and, you know, she's at a good place with them and she knows how to write the grants. But you know, it's those kind of things you have to try, you know, like you can't just write one grant. You got to you got to write quite a few at sales um, and, and try everything. And when in doubt, if you want it bad enough, just take a job for a couple months and pay for it. And it's probably going to be less work than getting it funded by sponsorship. Yeah, that's a really good point. What What about your uh, and we didn't touch on this, but you're you're, you're an incredible photographer. You've been published in all kinds of places. Where has that skill, how has that played into, into your ability to do these trips? Man, yeah, that, that skill, sometimes I, I struggle a little bit bouncing back and forth. Like some years I'll be more of just a photographer and I'll go to these kayak races and, and just be watching people kayak and not paddling a bunch. And, and I really love getting creative. I love portraiture and, and taking photos, but man, then, then another year will come and I'll be a little bit more of a paddler and I'll be charging. I'll put the camera away and I'll be in front of it more. Um, but yeah, these days I'm trying to balance out and do as much of both as I can. And I realize, you know, I can 
get more artistic and focus on portraits and making shots happen. But um, for me, that feeds right into the paddling and it, they, they feed into each other and they make both things more possible too. You know, I'm able to get better pictures cause I can get to different locations with climbing gear and paddling and, and, uh, and that's going to help me go paddling and climbing cause I'm able to market what I'm doing and I'm able to show people pictures and tell, tell stories. So it's for, at this point, I can't separate the two. But when it, when I did start doing photography, my plan was like, I want to be able to just make all my f money doing photography. Um, but now that I'm at the place I'm at right now, I'm actually really glad that I'm um, still getting to be an athlete as much. And I know that cuts, you know, some of the jobs that I'm able to do and some of the drive that I have towards um, photography a little bit. But um, it also creates probably 80% of my opportunities. So I just kind of embrace it all and try to keep following my heart. Badass. So what's next? Oh, man. Well, we've been learning how to paraglide, so that's been a nice little adventure um, here in the gorge from all the, the kayakers here. There's no shortage of kayaker paragliders. But um, next Let's see. I, th I think I might be going to Alaska with the Wells brothers. I'm kind of at a point where I hadn't, hadn't been paddling for a few years. And then the past two years I've been paddling and, and ramping it up. So I'm feeling really strong and um, want to keep the momentum going and maybe do Nepal or do Alaska with the boys. And um, sometime this winter or the next winter, Sarah and I are probably going to do some kind of real long epic. And we're bouncing between a few... Um, but it, yeah, there'll probably be some super long epic, like maybe on the north coast of Russia, like 11 time zones, six, seven month kind of trip, or more multi-sport combining climbing and kayaking and, and polar travel. So sick. I can't wait to see it. Well, we are at our, we're over our hour mark, Boomer. That has flown by. Oh, wow. Um now, to, sh to shut these shows down, we always do a rants and raves segment. So basically, anything that you want to rant about that's, uh, that's got under your skin or anything that you want to rave about that you're super stoked on, um, we'll throw that down here for the closer. And I can lead us off if you, if you, if you, you want. Yeah, I'd like to hear what you got first. <laughs> well, you know, this is a little off topic. A lot of times my rants and raves have nothing to do with what we've actually been talking about, but I'm going to rave about the minivan. And I believe, <laughs> I believe you've owned a minivan. Have you not? Yeah. She just passed away actually last week. It died in the big horns, dude. I got <laughs> all the way back from the big horns. Dude, I know, I know minivans have got this rap as, you know, soccer mom, whatever, but dude, it is the most functional vehicle ever. You can throw wood inside those things. You can take the seats out. You can put a bed in there. You can put all the chairs in there. I'm just going to rave about minivans. God, man. Well, you, you took mine because I love minivans too. I think I might be trading in antics for a Mitsubishi minivan here soon to get that. <laughs> but God, I, I, I hear you, man. I love them. They're the best. I, I mean, I uh, see people with like big trucks and all this kind of thing, and I'm just like, man, you are really missing out. <laughs> well, we got a big truck right now, that's for sure. The Ford Dually uh, 350, the I'm best pull of the tiny home. Oh, that's right. Well, that's a little different. You can't quite pull the tiny home with the van. 
So my my rant and rave, I guess I'm gonna steal it kind of from Noria. It was something that she said, and and I saw it on the river with her, and and it really inspired me to look at things a little bit differently. You know, um, when I was paddling the pass, it was all about you know trying to be the best paddler, to be the one who doesn't run anything, the one you know who just is the best kayaker. And I guess one thing that I learned from her was like. Instead of trying to be the best kayaker, be the kayaker that everyone wants to be with and everyone wants to kayak with, you know, by like making everyone else's experiences good. It, it doesn't matter how high you run the little white or what drop you run. Ultimately, you want to be the dude that everybody wants or gal that everybody wants to be on the river with, who's always positive, always there for a helping hand, doesn't leave your boat in the one spot where people need to get out you've always got your throw bag you've always got that positive edge um you know it's it's cliche and it's simple but it is really true it's not you know it's it's important not to to focus on those drops but just who you are and what you do with the team that is a great rave we're gonna have to get noria on the hammer factor here mm-hmm. get some insight from her in the near future yeah get her on um, well, where can uh, before we close this down? Where can our listeners uh, learn more about you? Do you are you through an Instagram page? Do you have a website? What's the best way for people to follow you? Instagram is where I'm definitely the most active, and it's at e boomer e b o o m e r. Yeah, I try to do as much Instagram as I can and Facebook. Yeah, I kind of just do Messenger and a few things for mom and dad on there. 